0: Like if there's parts of you that you need to hide, because you're worried that if people find out about them, and that used to be my worry, if people really know about my story, like someone, are they going to love me? Like, will they really truly love me if they know my story? Yeah. Will they judge my, my family dynamic, my son, because his biological father, you know, walked away when I was six months pregnant. Does that make us less worthy? The, does that make us, you know, the stereotype of, um, you know, a black family? And I was able to do this kind of transformational switch where I was like, I owned every part of that story. I was like, yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. These things happened to me and they have, I wouldn't wish them upon anybody, but they are a part of who I am and I'm not ashamed of them anymore. I I really feel like they have changed the trajectory of my life and, and allowed me to be more empathetic in the world. And do the work that I do now in a really transformational way.
1: Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations, where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mom Strength. I'm Soda B. your host, and I am so honored and grateful to bring on Salam Debs to my podcast today. Let me just tell you about Salam. So, I've followed her for a while, like I don't even know how long. I literally started coming on Instagram more two years, two and a half years ago when I was pregnant with my second child, and it was the pandemic, and everyone was going online. That's when I started, and I started following and seeking out people who felt in alignment with my values, in alignment with my view in the world. And Salam is a very powerful anti-racism educator, but she's so much more. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Salam is a black Ethiopian queer woman, an anti-racism educator, an anti-oppression coach, a social justice advocate, a student in dismantling anti-black racism, an accomplice in dismantling anti-indigenous racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia and an advocate in two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus, and disability rights through an intersectional lens. Now, she's more than that. She's a mother, first and foremost. She's a founder of Juicy Yoga. That is a yoga studio in waterloo uh and i have a history with waterloo too because i did my undergraduate degree there many years ago so she's also yoga and meditation instructor a restorative yoga teacher trainer a holistic life coach a reiki master and a lululemon ambassador i feel like salam must be like a hundred because i don't know how you fit all of these years of experience (laughs) and training (laughs) literally i'm like holy crap what am i doing with my life um But yeah, and she sings, you sing in your stories and you have a magical voice and it is healing hearing you sing. And when I hear it, especially in the morning, I'm just like, ah, what a nice way to start the day. I don't have any singing skills. I did vocal lessons for years. My mom thought I was great. I'm not. So I really do appreciate your singing and sharing that gift with us. You're a songwriter, a poet, a practitioner of self-acceptance, self-love and radical compassion. Um, Salam's anti racism work is rooted in the understanding that we must acknowledge and identify the insidiousness of white supremacy before we can dismantle colonial belief systems. And that white supremacy exists in all of us, not just in white folks. And the process of undoing, unlearning, and re educating is necessary for white communities in particular to embark on to support the healing journey for our racialized communities. Salam is also a board member of Project Up. Is that right? Up, yeah app and sexual assault support center of waterloo region and women's entrepreneur center Gloria university so salam welcome
0: on to mom strength uh, i'm so honored and grateful to have you here today so ravi i'm so happy to be here thank you for bringing me on i love everything you do so it's it's so good to be here
1: so tell me a little bit about yourself you have i know you have a son tell me about your experience into parenting and into the work that you do now. You can start as long ago as you want, maybe when you were born. <laughs> it's totally free for all.
0: Yeah, I typically start like yeah, a couple decades ago and maybe even longer than that. My my parents are both Ethiopian from Tigray, Ethiopia actually. We're from the northern part of Ethiopia which is currently experiencing a two-year genocide not televised in in the media often. And my family went from separately, my parents didn't know each other, but they both moved, it was very typical to move from Ethiopia because of the civil unrest to Sudan. And then from Sudan, they met and then moved to Amman, Jordan. And I was born in Amman, Jordan. And then they came to so-called Canada for a better life. You know, Mm -hmm. they came here to create a better life. Um, I was Very young when we came here, I was two years old and grew up with my mother, a single mother in Regent Park and in Scarborough, uh, Warden and St. Clair, and the Cataraqui for Valley and uh, grew up in in those communities. And I watched my mom work two or three jobs, uh, work night shift, um, you know, have to, I had to get to school on my own. I had to figure out everything, um, grew up very quickly. And I watched her work and, you know, really break her back to try to provide for us, for myself and then my sister who was born when I was nine years old. And so we, uh, my mom then, uh, you know, at a young age, I survived um, being molested at the age of nine and then being put into the child welfare system for a period of time, coming back into my family uh, dynamic and then you know, obviously all of that playing out in all of the ways in which not only systemic racism, like growing up in disinvested communities that are cockroach infested, you know, being a survivor of abuse. And then my mom was like, okay, I'm going to create a better life for my children. So let's move them to Kitchener-Waterloo. That must be, that's going to, there was a growing Ethiopian and Eritrean community. So let's go there. And that should be a a much, um, you know, safer place to live. And we lived in the same type of disinvested communities, um, you know, in Paul Lander and Chandler Mouat. And um, I, at the age of 16 in high school, uh, was raped and then experienced, you know, being downstream in terms of academics and didn't get access then to university. And so all of this, and, you know, my mom thinking that she was creating this better life for us by coming to KW, um, and really, actually, it was the worst type of racism I ever experienced. Kitchener-Waterloo is a very German Mennonite community, a very white community, at least in, you know, Scarborough and Regent Park, you saw a lot of Black and brown people. You were mostly 99% around brown and black people. So you had that community, right? And so that led me to Finally, you know, trying to navigate all of that, not realizing what had happened to me, you know, and not recognizing the trauma that I had gone through, uh, whether it be police violence and being thrown off of a bus in Ottawa when I was there and handcuffed for no reason and watching my friend have their knees in his back, whether it be the systemic racism being downstream, surviving abuse, all of these things, um, I finally then at the age of 21, had my son and found out I was pregnant. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, especially in our communities, in Ethiopian communities, it was like shame and how could this happen? But for me, it was like my greatest blessing. It really was. I knew intuitively. And that's one thing I think has been my saving grace is that I've always had a deep connection to spirit. And even when all of the things have been happening around me, there's this inner awareness. And I knew that it was actually going to transform my life. And so I had this beautiful boy um, and this little boy led me to meditation, which led me to yoga, which led me to therapy, which led me to healing work and which really um, has led me to where I am today. And he's 17 years old. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by. (laughs) I know. I'm
1: just like, okay, first of all, the experience would make you at a hundred and then your life, like you look very young, you know, but also this is one thing that I have been thinking about because the people will tell me I look young, but I'm like, that's because your looks is based on whiteness. Yeah. But, but if you compare me to other Indian folk, I look my age, right? It's just when we compare everything to white norms, yeah, you look young or you this or you that. And it's like, but let's just, there's no standard. There's no standard. And, you know, I want to step back a little bit and just talk about when you grow up and my parents moved here for a better life as well. And we had a great life in India. Yes, there's the pollution and yes, there's, whatever else traffic and whatnot and there's a lot of stress people in mumbai india they work long days like way way more than people here right and like because they have to to survive and there's a lot of competition so there is stress but they came here thinking there'd be more opportunities and more ease of life and that is the exact opposite of what they've gotten and a lot of people don't recognize that they think everyone is here from black and brown countries because of a war or they're refugees or they're like their life back home is awful. But like we had maids, we had, you know, we had help. We had nannies. Like there's none of that here. And my parents are still in their seventies, still working, right? Like they're going to be working till they're very old because they can't afford not to. Um, and for you growing up in Regent Park, I'm in, I'm from Toronto. I went to school around, not in Scarborough, but like border or on North York, Scarborough. Um, and when you grow up in a disadvantaged area, like you are forced to grow up quickly okay. and it's not your fault, right? Like people have a lot of blame, like, oh, these parents aren't caring for their children. They obviously care, but they have to work and they have to pay the bills, And so children are forced to kind of be independent much earlier on. And, um, you know, it's, it's sad and it is happening. So we need to talk about it. And I'm grateful for you for sharing those experiences and moving to KW. Like I know, I know Waterloo is not very, I don't know how it is now in 2022, but like back when I went to school, it was 2004. Right. And, um, Everyone was like, "Oh, Waterloo is so multicultural." I'm like, "What are you talking about? I came from, I came from North York. Waterloo is very white, very, very white, mm-hmm. um, and the culture is very white. So I can, I can see how it would have been a huge culture shock moving out of Regent Park to you know, community that's predominantly white and German and Mennonite, and um, being so it's out racist. of place there. Yeah, and racist. Yeah, like let's just call Overt- it what it is.
0: Overtly racist. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And when you became um, pregnant with your son, and I love that spiritual connection and like knowing that this was the right decision for you. Did you face a lot of backlash? You mentioned in your community you did, Um, you know, there's a lot of shame and stigma. How about, you know, just in in the outer world, were you working at that point? What were you, what was your life like at that point?
0: Mm -hmm. Because I'm thinking, I'm
1: sorry, I didn't interrupt, but my life at 21, I did not know what I was doing.
0: I'll just tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And neither did I. I did not know what I was doing, but I think it definitely placed me on a different track and a path, you know? And I think my path that I recognized once I had him, something kind of clicked in my brain where I was like, I need to interrupt cycles of trauma. I don't know where it came from or what book I read or what how it happened, but it was almost like innately. I was yes. like, oh, I'm looking at things that I never thought about. I never thought about my abuse up until the point my son was born. It was like something ignited in me. And I, you know, had difficult conversations with my mom and I had difficult conversations with people in my life where I started to talk about that because I felt this deep sense of protection for him and also a sense of like empowerment uh, for myself. And, you know, in the world, I was obviously experiencing a lot of um, stereotypes. I remember that when I when I went for the second week visit where you go in with, um, you know, they come, you come in with the baby and they check to see everything's okay and all the things. And the nurse, I'll never forget, she said to me, and I think I was just wearing, it was the style at that time was like, you know, those shirts that were kind of, um, they were tight on on your chest, but then they flowed open. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't buying maternity clothes. I just bought whatever I could, you know, yeah. whatever was in style and I bought it. And it yeah. worked. So it, you know, covered my belly. And um she said, you know, you you're really going to have to start acting like an adult and like a mother and uh stop going to nightclubs and partying and start being a mother and you know, and grow up. And I was like, part of me, what, because I cared for myself because I didn't come out in pajamas (laughs) a week later. Yeah, that's part of our culture, you know, part of our Ethiopian culture. And part of I think a lot of African, black, brown, Asian cultures is that we, we do take a really strong sense of pride in ourselves. And so, you know, there was that stereotype that, that maybe I'm even younger than I am, the stereotype that I'm irresponsible, the stereotype that I, you know, don't know how to take care of my child or that I am, you know, incapable. incapable. Or like leaving
1: him to go party, right? Like, what? And like, uh, you know, for anybody who's had a child, you're in a very vulnerable state postpartum, like very, I almost think about it like the womb, like, I'm not sure what type of birth you had, but like, whether it's a vaginal or cesarean birth, like you're open and you're healing and your uterus is kind of shrinking and you're in this open, vulnerable state. Your baby in the first two months of their life, you know, there's a lot of development. And to hear traumatic words like that is so painful. And I'm sorry that you had that experience because that is as any nurse person working with pregnant folks, check your bias and not even your bias, your hate. Cause That is a judgment. It wasn't like she was asking you, oh, are you, what's your life like right now? There's no question. And there's just an outward judgment and um, based on her own presumptions. Um,
0: And that is so far from the truth. Absolutely. And and I think experiences like that yeah, and, you know, overt racist experiences of, you know, being in spaces and people saying really harmful things about my culture or, you know, telling me that I should make sure that I don't date black men and I should date white men and that white men are safer and you'll have better experience. You know, there there was just there, there was a lot. And I think when I when I look back at that time, I learned how to just survive. Yeah. all of the violence and the hate yeah. and persevere and build resilience through it. Like you were sharing around growing up in disinvested communities. You just learn how to survive it. Yeah. Um. And it wasn't until way, way later in my life that I started to then peel back another layer, an onion and be like, oof, that's a lot like actually processing it. Yeah. 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 And like one of the
1: things that i talked to my, with my therapist is like, it was, she asked me when I first started working with her, like, why now? Right. And I I was like, I don't know. I just, you know, I feel like it's, I need this. And she's like, a lot of the times it's because you're finally actually in a safe space where you feel ready. And I was like, I didn't even realize that because prior to that, I did not feel like I was in a safe mental or physical space to actually start processing the years of heart hurt, harm, trauma. And with a young child, it is hard to then raise that child, especially as a single mom, and then also process your own trauma. Like, and, you know, I, um, that is hard. How old were, how old was your son when you started investing more energy and like creating space for that?
0: Yeah, I think around my son was probably around maybe three or so when I started that process. And, you know, my aunt was actually um, transitioning and she had was surviving cancer for many years and was now transitioning. And I'll never forget my cousin reached out to me. And he was like, come down to Ottawa. Um, We're going to, you know, surround her with love and um, we're going to surround her with meditation and we're going to do all types of meditation practices to support her. And it was the first time I was really introduced to, you know, that type of practice. Mm. And, And so it was, I was introduced to that kind of, you know, introspection or that, you know, space in a place of sacredness, right? Which is why for me, you know, healing practices and activism and yoga, meditation and prayer, and all of these things are so deeply sacred for me and and why it's it's frustrating to see it, you know, being co-opted and whitewashed and um, you know, harmed and, and taken and stolen. And, um and so that was my process of starting that starting that because I grew up actually, extremely religious, and spiritual, but by choice, it was never forced upon me, my parents never said, like, Oh, you need to go to church. And I really was always seeking at a very, mm. very young age. And so my seeking has always stayed the same. It's just how I'm, you know, the tools that I'm using to, to bring about that awareness is evolving continuously.
1: And I love that. It's, um, it kind of reminds me of when my grandmother passed on and we're Hindu and it was, um, in Hinduism, death is normal, right? It's just you're transitioning to a different state where you're closer to God and you're, um, it's, it's talked about like a normal, normal thing, which it is normal, right? Everyone who is born will some, at some point die and it's like a normal transition to the next thing and when she passed away we were very close we shared a room together and um it was the most i it sounds weird but it's the most beautiful ceremony to Mm -hmm. kind of send her off and that was my reintroduction to hinduism because i had pushed it away for so long because of whiteness to be honest it wasn't christian it wasn't it was weird, the temple, it was, uh, you know, different culture, different clothes, different rituals, and I pushed it away. And I used to think it was because of my parents forcing it on me that I pushed it away. But they never really forced it on me. They were just hurting that their children weren't invested in what their culture was. And they didn't do their own years of therapy to recognize that. And so I think now as an adult, I recognize it. And um, my grandmother's Death has brought me a lot of healing because I've re-invested my time and energy into understanding more of my culture and the yoga and the meditation and the like, staying present and being instead of like fighting the truth and what's happening is kind of like being with it. And um, I love that you've had a similar experience with your your aunt. And uh, you know, as as a mom, as a single mom, a black single mom raising a black boy. Can you tell me about what that journey has been like? Because it can't have, can't have been, couldn't have been easy in Kitchener, Waterloo, especially. Were you the only black family? Were there other black families around you?
0: Yeah. You know, because we were in disinvested communities, we were mm-hmm. around black and brown people, of course. And so we had our own little insulated, you know, community. Um, it was more when you went outside of your community and, you know, you're in high school or you're in uh And as I grew up and was in other spaces and workspaces that I think, you know, I didn't really have my first real friendship with like a white person until like, um, I would say grade 12 and then it kind of like lingered and then it was into the work world. And when I was in the work world and, you know, had had those relationships where you're like engaging and being in relationship with white folks. But of course, we all grew up watching all of the shows and consuming all of the indoctrination of who you should be and who you shouldn't be. And so raising my son, I knew that I wanted to raise him with his culture. I knew I wanted to raise him to love himself. And I thought I was doing a good job at that. I thought that I was like investing all of that in him and pouring that into him. And then I'll never forget at the age of four you know, he came to me and he was like, Mommy, I wish you called me Zach instead of Jaleel. Mommy, I wish my hair was straight instead of Afro or curly. Mommy, I wish my skin was white instead of brown. And I remember just being so, like it, it, it hurt me so deeply.
1: That's like a dagger, like that's,
0: yeah. I was like, how did this happen? Even after I've poured, like he's grown up with his culture, he's grown up around other black and brown people. But it was because the the society, like the the space the KW, and I think in general where we in live, general. yeah, in the world, we constantly are receiving that messaging, and the messaging is that you're inferior, and that the goal is to always, you know, um, is always to emulate uh, whiteness, right? And whiteness is superior. It's more intelligent. It's better. It's cleaner. It's it's safer. It's you know all of the things, and so. Um, that led me down a journey where I was like, okay, I, I really have to you know be even more of an advocate. And I think through that process and then him going into school is when it hit me. I was like, oh, these teachers don't all love my child and they are not all going to, they don't all see him in the light that I see him. Yeah. And so I started ex- experiencing, I'll never forget, and I think it was in grade one, where he had a teacher who was so incredibly harmful, and literally, it was grade one and two who treated him like he was this troublemaker, disruptive kid. When literally anyone that knows Jaleel from day one, like he is the most kindest, most caring. I met a- him like
1: once at the Trevor Noah show. He gives off a very like calm, like a
0: uh, gentle soul vibe. You know, yeah, he's yeah. an e- he's an easy kid. He's a very lovable kid, and and so. Started this. I started experiencing this thing where he would come home every day and say to me like, "Mommy, I'm. I keep getting told I have to go in the hallway. Mommy, I keep getting in trouble. Like what? I keep, yeah. And so this kept happening and kept happening. And at first, I think I inherited a lot of the things that my mom, you know, immigrant parents teach us, which is like just be good and don't make make any mistakes and don't disrupt and everything should be fine because our parents did that in survival, right? And they were taught to like bow down to educators and see them as authority. Um, But then I started to realize and other white parents actually said to me like, your son is being targeted, like, because he's black. Like we can sense it, we can see it. And started this journey of finally telling him, I will never forget, I said to him one day, I said, Jaleel, when you go into school tomorrow, stand up for yourself. And I said, don't be disrespectful. Don't say anything harmful, but stand up for yourself because I wanted to teach him that because at this point she'd really broken his spirit and he stopped really, he wasn't finding joy in school. And so I started there and he went to school the next day and the teacher did what she always did was what she said to, he was helping a student and she said, juliel stop disrupting the class. And he sat down. And she said, uh, don't roll your eyes at me. And he was like, madame, I, I haven't rolled your eyes at me, at, at you. Mind you, this is French immersion. And mm-hmm. that's a conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The racism in, in, in French spaces. Yeah. And um, he, she said, she said, yes, you did. And he said, no, I didn't. And she said, yes, you did. So the first time he stood up for himself and he said, he said no, I didn't, madame. And she said, get in the hallway right now when he was in the hallway he was crying and she said to him why are you crying stop crying like you should be apologizing to me she said for as a teacher mm-hmm. and this kind of thing happened and eventually I, I had I stepped in uh right after that and she ended up being moved um because It was a a pretty it was many different things that I had to record and get receipts of to finally be able to make my case. And so stuff like that, you know, was my experience of of seeing the way the world saw my son as a black boy and having to advocate for him. And I haven't stopped advocating. He's 17 years old. He's in grade 12 and it's still happening.
1: And, you know, I always thought as an immigrant that it was because I wasn't born here. I wasn't seen as like Canadian enough, but like he was born here and still, you know, that that to me, you know, it's not like, oh, you have an accent or you're different. Like you're literally just being racist. And does he now, because he's 17, does he remember those early traumas that has happened, like those early memories of, you know, being shamed in class or being targeted in class. How does he as a child, because he's still a child, you know, how does he kind of process that?
0: Yeah. And I, and I appreciate you saying that he's still a child and that's 17. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, people try to adultify, you know, black children and they try to treat them as, you know, people will say, Oh, he's a strong young man. And I'm like, no, he's a kid. He's still a kid. He's still, He's still, a, still kid. a child. Yeah. Um, he still remembers everything. He he remembers all of it. He remembers what happened when he was little, um, even a couple of years ago, right before COVID. there was an incident where all of the um, Black youth were going to this um, special conference and it was a way to address anti-Black racism, giving them a space where they could feel loved and, you know, feel encouraged and have mentors. And one of the students, non-Black student, wrote a Snapchat saying saying that, great, the Black, you know, youth are gone, Um, hashtag N-words are gone, hashtag epic. And, you know, yeah. So that experience, and I think what I've been trying to support Jaleel in is like recognizing all of the internalized racism because helping him see that, helping him understand the impacts of that, helping him see that he has a right to feel upset about it, to feel you know, hurt by it, to feel grief around it, to feel sadness about it around, not seeing a lot of folks that look like you, you don't see a lot of black, brown and brown folks and not, and and going through a whole lifetime of curriculum and never really seeing yourself. Yeah. That's trauma. That is trauma. That's,
1: yeah. I remember, um, you know, and that's something that because I grew up in India, I feel like like I was eight when I left India. I lived in Bahrain in the Middle East till I was ten. But in Bahrain, it was Indian curriculum, so I learned like Indian history. But it wasn't just when you learn Indian, when you learn Indian history, you also learn world history. You don't learn just India, and like you learn about the British and colonization. You learn all that stuff. And granted, there's biases there too. I'm sure. I'm sure of that. But I was shocked when I moved here. People didn't know where India was. I was like, the ignorance. I remember in grade 10, grade 11, world history class, my teacher was Québécois, and he was actually really good. I was the smartest kid in the class, but I played the role of a class clown because then if I was too smart, people wanted to cheat on me and people would get me to do their homework. And so I learned, okay, I'll just play the silly, goofy person and people think I'm not as smart as I am. And then somebody was making fun of me and he was like, stop it. She's getting the highest mark in the class and you're making fun of her. And like, he called them out. And then we were talking. And so I felt like, okay, this is a safe space. So we were talking about um, race somehow and how the damage of like white, you know, colonization and like the forefathers and stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. And my
1: white friend started crying in class saying, Um, I just feel like we're always, you know, painted as the uh, villains. And, you know, my grandfather, great grandfather, whatever it was. And literally the entire class stopped to focus on the sad white girls tears. And Mm -hmm. I was like but we still need to learn the history, but we didn't talk about it after that day. So they changed the entire lecture, the entire what is learned, because there's a hint of a white woman being uncomfortable. And that's when I, and I saw this, this is like somebody I was friends with through class and stuff. And I saw the power of whiteness and white women tears Mm -hmm. and how they weaponize it to get what they want and to pacify their feelings and soothe their feelings. And, you know, it was harmful to me that day. I'll never forget that day because I I remembered that we were just learning about the harm of colonization in India in, you know, all over the world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but that conversation didn't matter because one single white person was uncomfortable. And yeah. you internalized that. Your son has, you know, internalized years of being taught white history, white authors. Um, you know, there was an Afrocentric school in Toronto being mm-hmm. um, suggested. And I remember there was huge uproar. Oh, yeah. this is segregation again. And I was like, um, but we, they need the space because I went to school. I had black friends and they were constantly targeted for yeah. sure. I can say that, um, sent out made to do extra laps because like, I remember one of my close friends, she was bullied because she was, she's black. She's actually black and white, but she identified as more black or, mm-hmm. you know, biracial. And, um, she was bullied for her size and she got upset about it. And then she was made to run extra laps in gym class, sure. not the person who was making the racist remarks. And so growing up as a brown person, seeing all of these injustices, you learn, okay, how do I survive? By emulating this. And um, it's it's
0: everywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, there's no escape of it. And And the story that you share about the white women's tears. I literally had that experience just <laughs> literally yesterday, you know, being in a space and, 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 and in a space that's actually supposed to be about education um, and supporting children, AKA kind of like, you know, parent council spaces yeah. or, and uh, and and I experienced that the white women cry and then the conversation tries to shut down and then the black woman speaks up or the brown woman and then actually another brown woman spoke up and we both spoke up in the space. And, you know, it turns into this, like, why are you kind of, you know, why are you beating us up kind of thing? Why are you making us feel bad? And everyone gets silence after that. Right. And we're the aggressors and we're the angry people and the angry black woman trope. And yes. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and frankly, like I, yeah, I have so much, so much anger around that whole thing because Mm -hmm. it's really, um, we have all been harmed so many times with that same scenario playing out same with me earlier this week with my friend Um, and you know we need to be able to talk about these things and not be worried about pacifying white folks feelings because if they feel bad that's because they know that they or their ancestors have done something wrong it's not because they're being called out on it it's because they're forced they're being forced to face that pain and they need to but that's on them that's not on us we, yes. we were facing our own pain and our own uh, traumas. And, you know, mm-hmm. you as a mom, single mom processing this, how was that? Did you have any partners? Did you have support at that time? Were you with your mom at this time? Like how, what was your support system?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had a very unconventional life over the last, you know, 17 years. I think first I was with my mom and my sister. And so my mom supported, and then my sister kind of became like a second mom to my son. And she helped with babysitting and she helped on the weekends. And I would work creative hours, like, you know, I'll work four to midnight so that I can be with him during the day. And then you'll take care of the family, takes care of him in the evening. And I work weekends. You know, there was all of these things that, um, we would do to kind of work together um, until he could get into school, until he was at school age. And so right. that was kind of my process. And then eventually I, I did have some partners throughout that process. And um, I guess I should, you know, probably say that, you know, obviously the biological father walked away. Um, he never came back into, um, he walked away when I was six months pregnant and never came back into my son's life. And so we have definitely had a very unconventional, uh, story. And a big part of that has been being in relationships with people that were not the right fit and having to go through, you know, extensive therapy and figuring that out. Cause you see your traumas show up in relation in romantic relationships and, um, yeah, which yeah. you know, yeah, all of that leading to I think becoming an entrepreneur and being like, I need to be able to figure out how to care for my family in a way where I I am not going to have to be dependent on on someone.
1: Yeah, and you know what you said about when you became a mom, that's when that like something clicked, right? You're like your mama bear instincts, your like protective instincts. Um, I felt that same transition when I had my daughter four and a half years ago, and that was her pregnancy was extremely hard for me because I think all the traumas somehow, Mm -hmm. I think it I was really nauseous and fatigued and I was had bleeding and whatnot. It forced me to slow down and Mm -hmm. think because before that I would just bury myself in every extracurricular activities took, had two jobs. So I didn't have to ever think about what had happened. And that's when I, time slowed down. I was forced to sit and be in my body. And it was like, I, hated it it was so hard for me but now looking back at what a blessing and gift that time was and is because if it wasn't for me becoming a mother I don't know if I would have had the same desire to change and to like step into myself and like really authentically right um and accept accept our accept ourselves for who
0: we are instead of trying to push it aside I agree I think I I grew up th- like having a lot of insecurities when I was young, giving away my power, my power being taken from me, like in this kind of cyclical aspect of like feeling like I always had to change who I was and try to appease people and please people and, you know, all of that. And having my son definitely transformed that and helped me to start to see like, who, like, if you don't accept all of you, yes. then- then you're never going to be able to be free like if there's parts of you that you need to hide because you're worried that if people find out about them and that used to be my worry if people really know about my story like someone are they gonna love me like will they really truly love me if they know my story will they judge my my family dynamic my son because his biological father, you know, walked away when I was six months pregnant, does that make us less worthy? The, does that make us, you know, the stereotype of, um, you know, a black family? And I was able to do this kind of transformational switch where I was like, I owned every part of that story. I was like, yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. These things happened to me and they have, I wouldn't wish them upon anybody, but they are a part of who I am and I'm not ashamed of them anymore. I I really feel like they have changed the trajectory of my life and, and allowed me to be more empathetic in the world and do the work that I do now in a really transformational way. And
1: what you just said about like that shame part, because that shame was never yours to hold anyway. Mm-hmm. Like that's other people's shame to hold, but we internalize it as we did something wrong when we didn't right? And I've been going through the same journey myself is like, if we can't accept, and you know what it was, it was my daughter, she's, um, she's got a gift of seeing people for who they are. Like she from my son doesn't have it, daughter does. I, I don't want to, you know, maybe my son does, but like, she will look at you and see you for who you are. And so when she was born, she like our eyes connected. And I felt naked, like I felt like, wow, like she is seeing just me for me and accepting me for who I am. And nobody else, even my parents have never done that. Mm. Because when I was born, they had expectations from the second I was born. My daughter had no expectations of me. And so that type of love and that type of like, just looking at myself through her eyes and how she can just look at me with awe, even if I don't have makeup on and I'm a mess and I'm exhausted and I'm crying and all that stuff has really been healing to me. And I think that we, um, sometimes as mothers and as parents, we we talk about how hard it is because it is hard, but like the joys and the gifts of motherhood is is that, right? It's like, there's no nobody else could have given that to me, not my spouse, not my brother, or anybody else. Um, and I really value your own honesty in sharing your story because it it also destigmatizes those stories. yes, because those are just different ways, not even different, but just another way of being raised, right? Just like you could have mm-hmm. been raised in a mansion up on top of a hill with a pool in your backyard or you could have been raised somewhere else. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. Cause there's lots of unhappy people who are wealthy and, you know, growing mm-hmm. up in those fancy houses too, and who have faced abuse, you know? So we, we assume that they are better, but they're not. And it's, uh, it's kind of like a wake up call, like, Oh, like these
0: Absolutely. things can
1: happen and, you know, anywhere and everywhere. So with your, I want to hear about body image a little bit, because, we, know, we, you and I both know how body, you know, standards are Eurocentric and how, what is, has been your own journey with that?
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. I think about, um, I think I did a post yesterday about it. I was, there was someone sharing about, um, about the types of foods that we're supposed to eat. And, you know, I, I remember going through this phase when I was younger on like diet culture and like, oh, I'm going to lose weight and I got to lose my bum, which is my cultural. It's part of my cultural trait of being, you know, Ethiopian, being African. I'm going to, I wish that uh, my body could look different. And and I remember going through this phase where I only juiced, only ate chicken breasts and sweet potatoes, like had <sighs> out that. all <laughs> of the things, right? Like, like that sounds like, awful. <laughs> I know and 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 was brainwashed and really conditioned and socialized to believe that my cultural food was bad that Ethiopian food was bad that Indian food was bad that curries were bad that stews were bad that breads that you know rice and so I think you know growing up I definitely had this perspective that I That my body was not the standard right i saw constantly the images of white women and this idea that you know if you watch the show friends like we want our bodies to be like straight bodies like theirs and you know our bodies never look like that i never saw that when i looked at my aunts and i looked at my mom and i looked at you know my sisters and i looked at my family and my community our bodies were so different and i think I'm, i'm also fortunate Um, I don't know if you had this experience, but growing up in the 90s, we had a a lot of cultural also immersion and seeing ourselves a lot too, and in our community. And so I think I was always in this like kind of dichotomy of this fight between like what the white supremacist, cis, heteropatriarchal capitalist culture was telling me and then like what I saw constantly with my family and friends and my community um in one way I was told that I was beautiful because I had curves and then another way I was told that I was I was ugly and so um and and I was fat you know I was I was told that my whole life from the the white cultural aspect which is like yeah (laughs) and then I think that that transformation getting into the yoga world and not seeing any bodies that look like mine like our bodies and that was pretty that was pretty intense and so I think I've been I've been through this like process of like decolonizing everything when it comes to body image because now when we look around look the Kim K's and all of these people are stealing our bodies like Mm -hmm. literally you know, white women are injecting their lips to have lips like ours. If I see another white woman with injected lips, I think I'm going to lose my mind. All these shows that I watch and I'm like, oh my gosh, they don't even know how to talk with their lips though. They're like, they can't talk properly. like this. I yeah. know. And,
1: and the thing is like, people are so messed up because they're like, oh, we have right over our bodies. We can do whatever we want. And I'm like, okay, yes. But mm-hmm. also that was never like your body. And like, like I have, I don't know, because people will say, oh, well, who you? it's not your right to judge or decide what other people do with their bodies. But also when you're co-opting people's natural traits and like yeah. cultural traits that are not yours.
0: And not only why, that, why are you doing yeah. that? And not only that, when we, for me, for example, as a black woman, yeah. I am dehumanized because of those traits, the same, the same traits, the yeah. same traits, I'm, I'm, I'm over sexualized. I'm told that I'm unattractive. I'm told that I'm masculine, you know, like all of the ways in which our traits were told that we're unattractive and we're dehumanized or we're more likely to be, you know, um, Overpoliced or our communities are surveilled. Like we're seen as like irresponsible mothers because of yeah, the way. Told you're we- going to a
1: nightclub and you're like that. What? exactly for just okay. existing. that is so that's so harmful. And you know, I, I I do think I I see a lot of thin white women struggling with body image, and I'm like, how fucked up is it that you're already the norm, but you struggle with body image, and this is why that diet culture and white supremacy doesn't benefit anybody, even white folks. And they like, they don't understand that. Or a lot of them don't understand that. Cause you're like, it's impacting you in some ways almost more. Because for me, like when I moved here, I was, I was tiny. Like, you know, a lot of Indian people are small, depending on where in India you're from. I was real thin and I should have been in grade six. And um, because I started school in India a year early. But they said, the principal said, you're too small. I'll put you in grade five so you're not bullied. I was still the littlest in grade five and I didn't grow a lot in one year. But I was held back academically because of my size. And so for me, it was the other way. I was always too small. I started eating like a Canadian. I would drink four cups of milk, eat all the cheese. My face exploded in acne. My body's not used to eating foods like that. I stopped eating my cultural foods because I didn't want to smell in school. So I would Mm. just not eat. I would just not eat. And so people thought I was a picky eater and didn't like vegetables. I'm like I love okra. I love cabbage. Like I love the way it's cooked in India or by like my my home, my my native foods. But I didn't like the idea of a garden salad with like a lettuce and tomato. And that's what other people saw as being vegetarian because I'm vegetarian and we didn't eat a lot of eggs or dairy. There was dairy in our <laughs> sweets and our like some of our foods, but a lot of South Indian familial food is a lot of it is vegan. And, um, you know, I, my experience with diet culture was trying to gain weight Mm -hmm. to try to fit in, to try to have a bit more curves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I never succeeded, obviously until I had my second baby. And you know, what's funny, nobody tells me I'm too thin now. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I finally have a belly. I finally have curves. Right. And nobody's my bum's not harassing me to eat more. And, but this is the problem with diet culture. Why can't we just accept Mhm. Bodies the way they are. My mom is small, I'm small, my dad's small. What would I expect, right? Like
0: absolutely.
1: And um the big boobs, like the big butt, like the whole injections and
0: implants and I'm like, that is not a white woman's body typically. No. And it's like that's fine. You have a time ton- you can do whatever you want with your body, but stop co-opting and stealing from black culture. Yeah. And 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 using it as like a, you know, currency. Yeah. In yeah. society. And and you know, that's what they do. Well, we don't have, you know, we don't have the privilege to be able to do that. This is who we are. And it comes with consequences. And it comes with also culture and beauty and ancient yeah. like history. And you can't just take that and you can't just on, like it select off. it. Yeah. Not yeah.
1: It. It's like yoga. I'm waiting for the day yoga is no longer trendy. I'm just waiting for it. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And it's gonna decide it's old news and like white folks will move on to the next thing and i'm like oh yeah I mean, it's left a bad taste in my mouth because of how unwelcome i feel in yoga spaces so mm-hmm. i would practice it more and now i'm starting to learn about like okay i, I can't let them decide what i do
0: mm-hmm. and like
1: what cultural practices i continue practicing because um there are spaces for people of color you know run by people of color and we need to find those spaces and elevate those spaces because we lose our ancient wisdom and the the sacred practices that come with yoga. And it's not just stretching and flexibility. Uh, And I appreciate that you talk about that in your studio as well. And, you know, decolonizing yoga and yoga industry standards that exist here. Can you talk about your journey now as, uh, you know, your child is growing up? (laughs) You said he's going to university next year, right? Hmm. and how is it now because your parenting journey is not done by any means he still needs you in a big way especially over the next 10 years or so you know that I feel like it, until you're 25 30 you're still a child you know yeah. um what are your what are you focusing on now
0: Hmm. yeah and I really appreciate you saying the part about him you know them still being a child because I think the western Canadian white culture is like Okay, you're out, you're 18, get out and you know, all right, you figure it out. Or their perspective is like, you know, their parents go into retirement homes. I mean, anyway. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, The point is like everyone just gets sent out and there's no community. So for me, I think I'm really excited that Julius he's gonna stay home for school and he's gonna go to, to Laurier. Um, you know, he just got his G2 and so he's driving. So I'm excited for the autonomy he has. I'm worried also, you know, for his safety. Um, He wants to get involved in film and editing and the film world. And so I think what I'm trying to do is really support him in that field and helping him Tap into what's possible for him, right? And I think our parents never had the ability to do that. And so I'm like, what can I do to help? You know, lift him up and build him up so that you know we can go to the Toronto. There's a Black Toronto Film Festival coming. There's opportunity to go to Vancouver and do some things there. And he's uh, he edited my course, which was really amazing. What? I That's incredible. That was Jaleel. Like he did it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So he has incredible talent. I think what I'm trying to help him understand. So even after all of these years of like working so hard to pour into him, all of the the, um, media aspect, like the people he would learn from are all white. And um, you know, people probably listening to this like, "Oh my gosh, they came back to race again." (laughs) It's like, well, it's reality. It's reality. And if you were a fly on the wall in our home, you would hear me saying to him every single day, like Jaleel, we we gotta seek out um, people that you can be mentored by in this industry, so that you don't continuously get socialized into thinking that your stories don't matter that our stories don't matter because you're going to be storytelling you're going to be directing you might be producing you know the next black panther or some other amazing film or story or short film and so I'm trying to support him in really reimagining for himself um because at the end of the day I I know that intergenerational trauma is passed down and he's like I know he can do anything But we still are, you know, amidst systemic racism and all the ways in which he's going to have to navigate university. And I'm like, child, I will come to your school. I will. These people know me in this community. (laughs) I know who I am. Mention your mother's name and use that as an opportunity to be able to um, hopefully be able to push through that.
1: Well and I think that's the other part about the parenting it's like you can do I think about that too is like you th- you teach all this stuff at home but the external environment the schools the daycares have such a powerful influence on your child like something is so simple we eat with our hands indian food right and why uh, one one day nisha my daughter comes home and uh, only started eating with a spoon or fork like even like the stuff that is you're like, how do you even eat this with your spoon and fork? And, yeah. but she's been told every day at daycare, it's not clean to eat with your hands. But like, they're not even saying it as like an insult to people who do eat with your hands, but it's these subtle things that are mm-hmm. so deeply harmful. So now I'm like, screw the cutlery. I'm like, we're making sure we really, and I'm like, you know, eating with my hands. Like, it's just, it's a small thing, but it's a part of our traditions. And I- I think our kids are going to be dealing with that because they're still raised in that same white supremacist bubble. And um, as he grows up and becomes an adult, he'll probably do his own journey of unlearning, too. And I think you've set him up for success in a way yeah. that maybe you didn't have because your your parents didn't have the same opportunities and the same access
0: and... um Absolutely, same experiences as you. I hope he. I can't wait till he gets to his angry Malcolm X stage. I'm really, I'm really looking for that moment. You know, everybody goes to that moment of like, what? You know, and and I mean, I've obviously, like you said, you know, we share with our children all of the things, right? They know about white supremacy, and we talk to them about codes, like they they know all the things. But I think there's an internal awakening that has to happen for them, where they go, oh, okay. I, you know, because I know he experiences from his white friends, you know, microaggressions, macroaggressions, which are really abuse, death by a thousand paper cuts about his hair, about his, you know, all of that has happened for years. And I know that he also sometimes protects me from the things that happen because he knows I will show up. I will pull up to any space. And so I know he has to go through his own kind of like building of that awareness and that fire to wake up and go, oh yeah, enough is enough kind of thing.
1: And for him to just learn that he can advocate and like feel empowered to stand up and know that it's safe to do so, because that's the other thing is we're not going to stand up until we feel like, you know, okay, it is safe. I am protected. Um, And that death by a thousand paper cuts is so, so accurate. And I had a big falling out this week with a friend who I've known for 22 years, and I think I briefly shared with you that. And um, it's actually, I don't think I'm hurt as much anymore. I think it was meant to be. It had to happen at some point because we've grown, I've grown, and she's still back in high school (laughs) phase. And ultimately, when people are not willing to see the impact of their hurt and harm, or even recognize that their actions as a nice person, quote unquote, can be so deeply harmful, intentionally or unintentionally, we can't change them. And they have to recognize that for themselves and do that journey themselves. Um, And that's something that your course really, your course was deeply painful for me, just learning, because I think that was necessary. Because it's not, you know, I know things from a brown Indian lens and then there's like the black lens and then there's the indigenous and then like the Chinese and the Japanese and like all of the different cultures and communities around the world that are so deeply impacted. And then we pretend like we're just fine and nothing happened. And you're like, but it did. And so I think there needs to be that pain in that learning so then yeah. you can then start to come over to the other side and be like, okay, but what now? What can we change now? And what systems can we like speak up at? Like we went to our kids' daycare for Canada Day. actually my, my partner, my spouse did because we took the, your course together. And I'm like, I'm not doing the labor for every single time there's an issue of race or something, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it is emotionally a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're parenting together, this mm-hmm. needs to be, this needs to be happening. So they put Canada flag tattoos on my kids, my daughter, them, the older kids, without asking our permission, without, I'm like, first of all, don't mark my kids' bodies with anything without my permission. And they're like, oh, but she was excited. I'm like, she's a kid. She wants to be included. Of course, she's excited. Everyone else is doing it. But she's three, like, let's, you know, and we we talked about, we don't celebrate Canada Day. We, mm-hmm. we talked about the, you know, we just talked about the indigenous, you know, the harm and hurt. And suddenly the next day we're just in celebration mode. And um, anyways, that was a conversation that my husband had with them. Whether they are going to change it for next year, I don't know. But they won't touch our kids with tattoos anymore. That's, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, And then teaching your kids why they're not necessarily being excluded, but that that's an inclusion that we don't want to be part of.
0: Mm-hmm. That's why we have to clarify what we mean by inclusion and yeah. and diversity and all, all of these, this language that's been tokenized now and, you know, co-opted. What do we even mean by that? Yeah. And, you know, there's a cognitive dissonance around the colonial am- amnesia that they want us to all stay under, you know, yes, because they benefit from that. When we stay under the colonial amnesia and we, we are just not aware we're numb and we smile and we do racism with a smile and we accept these spaces, which is survival. It's not our fault. So, you know, we've had to assimilate, we've had to survive. And but the reality is like when we start to become aware and we go through that painful experience like you shared through, you know, doing that kind of unlearning and relearning and and looking at it, it, it ignites something in you. It wakes up something in you. It wakes up pain. It wakes up trauma. But it also is like a reminder like, oh, they've lied to me my whole life. And I get to reclaim back exactly. my culture and reclaim all the things we talked about today, body image, standards, food, how we eat. I always say that, like, why do we even sit at tables in the way that we do? Like, like we're all British. Yeah. I know <laughs> I tell in my clients kitchen. I'm like
1: eat breakfast on the floor because like we need mobility <laughs> and you're always sitting like sit in different surface, different place. Like we, everything is so you're right. It's insidious in everything we do. Um, And like, even just the act of like, when I show up at a friend's house, I don't want you to have to clean for me and give this big, I just want to feel like family. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. with like the whiteness, it's like, oh, well, uh, I have to know three months in advance so I can clean up. And I'm like, this is not friendship anymore. This is a business appointment. Like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. let's just take that facade off and be human. And I think that, you know, I showed my husband this video of like a Diwali celebrations in India. And I'm like, see the joy this joy, Mm. this joy. Can you tell me one white celebration that has this much joy?
0: Yeah. And no, (laughs) and you know what? Fine. Maybe Oktoberfest, but Oktoberfest is like a drinking. It's drinking. Yeah. When you're drunk, everything's fun, right? Like exactly. Yeah. And I I feel the same way, like in Ethiopian culture, it's like, I share a lot of, and I love that you do a lot because to me, it like protects me. I'm like, here's information about white supremacy. I'm going to say white supremacy 15 times today, but I'm going to continuously like integrate my, like Your joy. my, my joy in it because they're, I, you know, I made a decision a while ago after burning out multiple times, yes. like I'm not going to be a mule to white supremacy's awakening. That is not my job. Like my job is to impact my community. My job is to heal, my job is to support my son in intergenerational healing, to break those intergenerational cycles. My job is to thrive, my job is to be empowered, my job is to live a full and like, you know, full and thriving life. And, you know, on top of that, I will teach. I love to teach. I know it's I'm called to do that, but it's not going to be at the expense of my own well-being. Yes. And you know i think i'm grateful that i've been brought up in a culture where we know how to do two things which i know your culture does too our cultures all do black and brown cultures and indigenous cultures we know how to mourn and we know how to have joy yes we are not disconnected from our humanity um and i think what comes you know the culture of white supremacy and colonialism you know in order to be able to perpetuate that type of violence for hundreds and hundreds of years you have to disconnect from your humanity. And that's what we see here, this kind of capitalistic white supremacist, like very, um, you know, cannot dance. (laughs) (laughs) I I I have have
1: two kids and one has my genes for dance and one doesn't. And I'm like, I got to teach her because this is like, dance is like just, I'm not amazing at it, but it's just part of my life, you know, and it's, you just the rhythm and the feel and the music. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, because I, um, I shared just my experience this week, somebody messaged me on Instagram that I a friend of one of my best friends that I known for 22 years. uh, This, this other person messaged me asking me how to pronounce a name. Hey, Mm. Monday morning. Hey, uh, can you just tell me how to pronounce this name? I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) I'm like, am I an encyclopedia? Am I Google? Am I the am I the authority on name pronunciation? Am I the authority on every single thing Indian? And and let me tell you this, that name was not Indian. And I said, there are uh, 1.3 billion Indian people. There's millions of names and ways to pronounce names. And I said, this is not a question for me. And I'm like, why don't you just ask the person? Like, you know, you'd want to know something. Ask, oh, and she's a real estate agent. And she's like, oh, well, I would, but uh, some excuse. And I said- I just said, like, no, you know, look it up. And then she's like, "Ah, you know, hope you weren't offended. Sorry. And I said, you knew I was going to going to be offended because you're saying that. And I said, I'm like, actually, I'm really surprised you asked me this question. This is not appropriate. I'm not Google. Um, And I just left it at that. And I informed I messaged my friend, inform her that her friend had done this. Mm. And the way my friend reacted was, I mean, you know, initially it was like, oh, like, sorry, that, that wasn't appropriate. But, you know, you do talk about name pronunciation and, you know, um, I guess when you follow someone on social media, it seems like they get to know you or whatever. And, and I was like, even if my husband came and asked me random questions like that, I would have thought it was weird. And I, and I said, I was like, I don't need justifications. I need an apology and an acknowledgement of the harm. And a friend should be able to hold space like that and also have a conversation with your wife friend to stop doing this kind of shit. Um, And so that her reaction was very telling. But the worst part was her husband then messaging me the next day, gaslighting me and tone policing me and calling me, Mm. you know, condescending and then asking me not to tell his wife about it. (laughs) Wow. I was like this happens to nice white people, this is literally somebody I would have called family, 22 year friendship, but this is what, this is how they see me and how they, you know, that they don't really see me as an equal human. So um, why are we investing time into relationships like this? And for anyone who's a black, brown person of color, listening to this, I know you've had experiences like this with white friends. I know for a fact, every single person has, you do not need to put up with that kind of space um, where you're not seen for your humanity and take Salam's course because you'll learn. That's what, that's where I started learning. I was like, you know what? I have control over who I have around my life. Mm-hmm. Maybe my parents didn't when they moved here. Maybe I didn't as a kid, I was stuck in, you know, the circles I was, but now I have children. I have to be protective of them and my own space and my mental health. And um, I'm really, like that course changed my life. And I don't say that lightly um, because the healing, it was, it was really painful. Like during some of those, like just the lectures and you're like, because we didn't learn about this in school. And I wish we did because kids need to learn it, not so that they can hold that trauma in them, but so that they know what was actually happening. And mm-hmm. so that they don't repeat these mistakes over and over. White people need to learn this so that they recognize what their history is, their parents' grandparents' history is. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can also recognize why they're so disconnected with themselves and their joy and their, like you said, their grief too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I have a few questions for yourselves, but one thing that I did want to ask is as a mother to a um Black child, black boy, especially, what are some of the things that you have had to teach him that somebody who's white, even somebody who's brown probably does not have to teach their boys that? And this is something that I ask because everyone says their mothering is hard. Being a mom is hard, but it's not the same type of hard for everyone.
0: No, yeah. I mean, I think you know, we're very deliberate about the fact that he's driving. And that's a huge thing. You know, it's like, okay, what are are the things that we always talk about? We always do a check-in. Okay. So you're going to go out. If this happens, if you get pulled over, what do you say first? What do you do with your hands? Like, what are you going to communicate? You know? And, and so that's a big one, obviously recently that we've been dealing with, Mm -hmm. but you know, another part is like when he goes to friends houses, it's like don't go into and don't wander into any other rooms even like you're being a kid and like you're just gonna you're playing and you're I know that you're not doing anything harmful but like you may be accused of something so you know making sure that you're not wandering in any other spaces making sure that you're extra nice and saying thank you and saying please and all of that because of the ways in which they try to you know deem our, our children our black boys as as you know um as criminal really um you know if you're going out with your friends and y'all are at the mall making sure that you know you do not put your hands in your pockets making sure that when you're in stores that you're um that you're careful that you're aware if your friends and y'all want to go out because he's a teenager and he should be able to you know make mistakes socialize
1: yeah he should be allowed to make mistakes yeah.
0: But he he, you know, we really there's a hyper vigilance that he has to be aware of because of the fact that if his white friends decide that they want to, you know, do something and have, you know, have fun or be, you know, do something funny as a teenager, it's like you're the one that's going to be targeted if security or police or a Karen or a Ken, you know, the the policing white people of the community yeah. um, see you. And so um, I think it's things like that, but it's also like him going into the film world. And I remember us having like a really, It was a heart to heart and I, I felt sad and I felt like I have to do this. I have to teach my son this. I was saying to him, like, as he was developing, um, you know, developing content, I was saying like, you know, it's important for you to be aware. Like if you create like the difference between creating things that like are rooted in who you are or projecting the socialization of whiteness, right. In your storytelling. Yeah. And he was like, but mommy, like, why can't I? You know, it's a couple years ago, like, why can't, why do I have to think about this? My friends don't have to think about this. You know, when they're creating as content creators and doing media and editing and, and directing and writing scripts, like they don't have to think about all this. And I was like, I know, kiddo, and I'm sorry, but this is a reality. Yeah. And, you know, we've had so many hard conversations like that, where his white friends are able to do certain things. and And, and for us, we don't culturally, there's things culturally we won't do. You know, yeah. white friends, white parents often let their children, you know, do a lot of things at very young ages in their homes and drink yeah. and smoke. And I'm like, we can't let that happen. Yeah. And I want you to have autonomy and I want you to have freedom, but I also need to ensure you're safe. Safe. Yeah. And I think
1: that's the, um, that's the part that as a kid, I was rebelling as a teen and as a Brown girl, I wish that I did listen to my parents more <laughs> because they didn't necessarily have heart to hearts. It was more of a control, like listen to us or, or else that's it. Um, and I did many stupid things that I really wish I didn't do. Um, you know, scenarios I got myself into was taken advantage of because I was trying to fit in. And I think it's so, um, I think it's so important that you're having these conversations with him I know they're hard because it's going to hopefully protect him too. um, From also, you know, growing up and be like, oh, I've just been storytelling. I've just been creating from a white lens that I'm taking myself out of the equation because his, his expertise and his view is his expertise, right? Like his opinion matters. Um, There's a thousand other white, you know, creators out there. And even as a physio, right? Like as a physio, as a, pregnancy and postpartum fitness coach, my content is different than the other thousand, you know, Sarah's and white physios Mm -hmm. out there. Um, And, you know, people will be like, wow, your content's really good. I'm like, that's because you're not used to seeing content from a non-white lens. That's why you're, you're like, you're seeing it and you're like, oh, because I'm talking about things in a different, not in a different way, but in a way that's authentic to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, yeah, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm sure you're so proud of your son and I know He's going to grow up and be like, I'm so damn proud of my mother because what you have been doing for him and done as a single mother, and you're not just impacting his life, you're impacting your whole community and everybody who knows you in the online space and through your courses. Um, and uh, yeah, endless gratitude to you, honestly. Thank you. Um, I have some final thoughts I want to ask you about yourself and your everyday um, what's your, what are you reading right now? What's your favorite book, your favorite podcast? What, what do you recommend?
0: Ah, uh, so what am I re- I'm i not reading anything specific right now, but okay. I would think when I think about, um, a book that I really love recommending in terms of like parenthood yeah. is, um, I would say between the world and me, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I think that that book broke my heart open and was like, ah. He is like a poet and um, yeah, that book is an incredible book for I think anyone, but especially black parents that are, are listening to, to this podcast um, and, and all parents to listen to.
1: Nice. And that I'll put, put that on my list. I love reading in the fall and winter. I don't really read in the summer cause it's go outside more, but um, I'll put that on my list. And how about, what do you do on a daily basis for self-care? What do you mm-hmm. prioritize? Three rituals or three things that you do to hold space for yourself.
0: Well, I'm I'm trying to now like nightly do like a nightly journal. And so I'm trying to like write down my thoughts. Um, I listen to like an inspiring um to an inspirational video. And this sounds corny to some folks, but <laughs> it really helps me. But it's Oprah. And there's these words that she yeah. right. Yeah. Um and there's a video and it's the same one. It's, it's literally the same one almost every single time, but it's like, for me, it's like, I feel like I'm trying to lay down new neural pathways in my mind. And that's, you know, instead of all of these, uh, you know, patriarchal white self-development books that I read for so many years, I'm trying to like reprogram, you know, my mind to start listening to her voice and her experiences. I feel, I feel deeply connected to her childhood and the things that happened to her. And, And so, yeah, Oprah and journaling. Nice. And
1: um, one thing that I wanted to say about that is you... um The self-development books, I've always liked that too, even since I was a teenager, my parents liked it too, but you're right. They're all white voices. And even like words like, I'm a people pleaser, but I'm like, are you a people pleaser or a white people pleaser? Like there's, that's a difference, right? Like there's so many like, ah, imposter syndrome. And I'm like, I've never felt like an imposter. It's just that I'm never represented. So I don't feel like I belong. Like there's a difference, right? Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that I'm, I can step up and show up. It's just, we learn these key phrases and things that women deal with. And I'm like, I don't resonate with that messaging because the reason I feel like I don't belong is very different than
0: imposter syndrome. Exactly. And when white, white women and men and non-binary folks write books about, you know, from their perspective and their lens and try to, you know, market it as like for everyone, everyone yeah. It's it's not true. Right. It's not true. It's for a white audience. Be honest about that. Take accountability for that um, because our experiences are dramatically different in society. And so, yeah, listening to black and brown voices in everything I do now is really key for me to be able to, you know, do that healing. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: if what are you passionate about right now? What's something that's like new or old or anything that what's your main passion right now?
0: Um, what am I passionate about right now? I think I'm passionate about right now. I'm passionate about joy. I think I'm really trying to live out joy in like, uh, like regardless of all of the things and in spite of all of the things. And so practicing joy, I think, um, I had my 40th birthday recently and I had 90s R and DJ. I had, like, that yeah, looked so
1: amazing. That looked so much fun. And I love that joy doesn't have to be on pause because of other things that are happening. Right. Like it's I always think about that flowers are still blooming, even if there's a war like, you know, there's still flowers blooming. Nature still keeps going on. And like we need to keep experiencing joy and
0: love. And um, and if you look at other cultures, like not other our cultures across the globe, the global majority, you know work does not come first community comes first connection comes first and so we also internalize that white supremacy capitalist culture where we start to become these people where we're just like working to live and then we get home and then we don't have energy and then it's like oh it's hump day wednesday and then friday and then wednesday and it's like i am like trying to decolonize myself and get back to that to that place or you know i don't know if i was ever there but i know that i experienced it growing up that essence and i know what it feels like to go back home to go to ethiopia and and experience that when you know everybody's like i remember going to ethiopia and being like okay but we're we got to be there on time like at 12 (laughs) yeah and Um, everybody was like chikarayalam yellam in our culture like in our language means like it's not a big deal like we're good yeah that's
1: i'm like uh being on time is stressful to me because I've, my my family, we never were on time for everything, anything. And it stresses me out because everything is so timely here. And I'm like, listen, if I want to meet my friends for dinner, don't yell at me if I'm five, 10 minutes late. This is now becoming a stressful thing instead of a fun thing. Um, and it's a very like white thing, right? And, and, and it's also common in black, brown, you know, folks who also are living in that white supremacist lens they get upset about lightness and this and i'm like
0: yeah my dad was like that my dad definitely was like he he internalized that kind of professionalism yes and and i had this and then my mom was a complete opposite my mom was like did not and so it was like oh i and i fought myself on that i thought that i was a bad person or that Same. i was for so many years until I started to realize like now they have all these conversations around deconstructing and time is an illusion. I'm like, oh, really? So now y'all are going to start talking about, you know, changing work cultures and changing the ways in which we look at time. It's like, I think all of the things that I used to reject or I thought was bad about our, Our yeah, I'm like reclaiming it. It's like, obviously I'm not going to be disrespectful, but it's not that big of a deal. Yeah.
1: Exactly. That's what I feel. I'm like, it's really, it's not an emergency. Don't feel like, you know, the world is ending. Um, And the other thing is like, I remember like with that, this is how I see it. World, many parts of the world colonized, stole traditions, stole food, spices, cultures, women, changed North America, Western culture, And then now in India, they're copying Western culture. They're eating like us here. They're copying things. But now here we're learning, oh, West, you know, Eastern culture, you know, they were right. And now what's going to happen in 50 years is back home in India, they're going to start realizing that their ancient ways were right. But like that damage, like I see my cousins eating like food, like cheese dosas, like, I don't know, you know, you don't make cheese and dosa. I'm sorry, you cannot do that. And it's just like they're just copying the Western because they believe that we're better, just like they believe my parents believe that it's a better world here and a better opportunities. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you're you've been fed a lie. And I think even on sharing on social media, I know a lot, I have a lot of Indian followers, and I hope they see that coming here is not going to guarantee them anything.
0: Mm-mm. It's not. <laughs> no. If anything, you yeah. If anything, it's a it's a huge sacrifice. You give up a lot. You give up you so give up much. My- I still
1: today miss community. I still feel part of me is um, we live in an area where there's a lot of Chinese, Korean, Persian, but not a lot of Indians. And I feel like I miss community. And so I've started to go to the temple more often, even though there's not as many like young youth, there's still the sense of community and the clothing. My daughter for the first time wanted to wear Indian clothes. And that was really healing for me because I felt like, It's really important for my children to also love and embrace, you know, their Indian heritage. Um, And yeah, thank you for sharing that. Now, if you could change anything about the world, what would it be? I feel like I already know the answer, but...
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> Can we reverse the last 500 years of I know. white supremacy, colonialism that destroyed the earth, exploited, extracted, and you know where we're now all in therapy as black and brown, you know, and racialized and indigenous people for the internalized racism that we've experienced? I think the world is a little bit of a dumpter, dumpster fire right now yes, in yes, terms yes. of white men um, continuously destroying the world, and I do. Um, I think that what I wish more than anything, if I could change things is that our children will have a different vision for themselves and will not have to fight as hard as we've had to fight. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think that's my, my greatest, highest, you know, vision and and purpose for, for, for our next generation. I love that.
1: And I hope that that happens. Um, I think we're, we are part of the change and I hope that we create pathways for our children and for our, our children's children to live in a better, more healing environment and space. Um, and I think even mother earth, right? Like even the earth itself is crying, right? Like we have harmed the earth so much through yeah. our exploitation and capitalism and excess, excess everything. Um, yeah that's a great, that's a great wish. Um, and I hope that we will get there. Um, what would you say is your mom's strength?
0: Mm, I think my mom's strength is really owning my own story, like owning it to the point where it is transformative and, um, really releasing layers and layers of shame and, You know, I think folks used to say to me, like, oh, like, does Jaleel feel bad about himself because he doesn't have, you know, his biological father in his life? It's like, no, but we normalize those conversations from the moment he could speak. So it was never a taboo thing. And he knows about all the things that have happened to me. So I've never hid those things from him. So that in in obviously age-appropriate ways. Yeah, absolutely that it's been a journey of like reclaiming all of who I am and realizing the parts of myself that I used to think was too much is actually my superpower. Yeah. Um, When it's, when it's, you know, placed in the direction of good. And so I think it's, it's the ability to be able to mirror back to my son that I'm, I'm a human being. Yeah. I don't, I don't think my mom or my dad could do that for me. Um, Our parents could not because they were in survival and they were in teaching mode. And so although I teach a lot to my son, I feel like I'm also able to mirror back to him my humanity and the fact that I'm also a mother, but I'm also a, a human also being. Man.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a that's something that I wish, you know, my mom had done for me is just t- told me, oh, I've been through this, too. Uh, instead of that feeling of I'm the authority figure and you you have to just listen to me, we're perfect and you're the one making mistakes. And that was part of the, you know, the type of environment that I grew up in. and that that was probably part of the colonialism and the huh? the like patriarchy, you know, model too. So um, I love that. You are uh, an amazing, incredible person, and um you have touched so many people that you probably will never know. Because of the work that you do and also the um, fullness, the wholeness in the ways that you actually embrace who you are. I'm thinking about some parts of myself that I have never talked about. And I'm like, huh, why do I still hold shame there? Because Mm -hmm. it's not my shame to hold. And, you know, even just this conversation is very healing. Uh, And I'm so excited for people to hear it and connect with you you if they don't already know you. Um, and to continue just learning and engaging with you. If people want to find you or hang out with you or connect with you, where's the best place? And if they want to learn from you, where's the best place?
0: So first, I just want to say thank you, Soravi. You're such an incredible, your voice, first of in the anti-racism course was so incredible. And I remember being like, yes, Soravi's here. <laughs> like you're going to say all the things and you came in. I know there's a lot of emotional labor that came with that, but also your heart and your spirit, your voice was so fierce. Um, So I'm just totally in love with everything that you're doing. And I love watching your videos and how you inspire people. So thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Um, But folks can find me on salamdebs.com. That's my website. They can also go to Instagram um, at salamdebs and uh, Facebook for the same thing. Everywhere, everything is basically Salam Devs. If you look me up, you'll be able to find me. (laughs) Perfect.
1: And your next, when's your next round of your anti-racism course coming out?
0: So the anti-racism course, the cohort will begin the first week of January.
1: Amazing. I 100% recommend it. It has been transformational. There was a, it was actually perfectly timed for me because I felt like I went in to myself for a while and let it sit. And let it kind of just work through me and um, you know, just being kind with ourselves, especially for anyone who is Black, Indigenous, Brown, racialized, just having the compassion for ourselves because we didn't ask to be put in these situations, but we have had to deal with it time and time again. I didn't ask to wake up Monday morning and have that random message. I didn't ask for that. But yet we're dealing with it and we're dealing with the aftermath and um, having the tools, the language that you teach. It's more than the language, the really the understanding of like why we got here, how we got here and the communities that it impacts so much more. I see a lot of, you know, and I can say this because I'm Indian, you know, Indian people will feel sorry for themselves. But I'm like, you also understand that there are other communities that face it much more and in a more damaging unsafe way so yes and right like it's like yes we're dealing with this and we also need to be accountable and speak out so that even when we're uncomfortable that's what I prioritize now I'm like I'm uncomfortable in this scenario but this person may then go on to harm somebody else and that's that's what I'm thinking and that's not okay and um it's just helped me find my voice more so thank you so much thank you for this conversation lots of love to you and lots of joy to you as well. So if you're listening to this conversation and you loved it, please tag us on Instagram, share it with a friend, share it with everybody in your life who needs to learn, grow, and be inspired. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links, and we'll chat again real soon.